Welcome to the Lawyer Life Podcast, where the personal, professional, and political intersect. Each week, we discuss a topic to help ourselves and other lawyers navigate our days with a little less stress and ideally a lot more fulfillment. On today's episode, we're talking about practicing law with a revolutionary spirit. We chat with our inspiring guest about finding purpose and passion inside and outside of work. I am Mike Anderson. And I'm Darlene Tonelli. Hello, Darlene. Happy Friday. Hello. Happy Friday to you. How are you? It is hot. It's a hot day. Humid. I'm a little warm in the attic. More than that, I'm very warm. (laughs) Very warm. Yes. I don't know if that's going to have an effect of making me a bit more relaxed or or I'm just going to be inflamed, you know, for this entire podcast. So stay tuned to figure it out. Either one could be an interesting spin on our usual vibe. <laughs> like Mike sounds weird. Mike's hot <laughs> yoga version of the Lawyer Life oh, podcast. Mm-hmm. I like the way of looking at that. Yeah, people pay for this type of heat and humidity. You should just fit in a workout, you know? Do you think hot podcasting could be a trend if we just uh, get a bunch of people in a room with a microphone? Well, you're kicking it off whether, you know, if others choose to follow you, yeah, you'll be the trendsetter as always. I guess we've revealed it publicly now, so I just have to be first to market. But anyway, we'll we'll get there. What a silly conversation. What Um, a silly one. But anyway. Okay. So this is fun. Because outside of our normal format, we've actually already recorded the interview that we are featuring today. So mm-hmm. we just chatted with Graham Henderson, who is a great chat. And we're going to highlight a bit of thing, uh, a bit of stuff about that. But first, let me tell you about Graham. Um, so Graham Henderson promotes the value of music and advocates on behalf of its creators as the president and CEO of Music Canada. He is a champion of creators' rights. He's influenced Canadian Parliament's 2012 passage of copyright reform legislation. He helped lead the creation of the groundbreaking music funds in Ontario and BC and is a driving force in Toronto's Music City Initiative. This is like, think about this year. So in 2013, he was inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame and was presented the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal in the same year. What a great year. That's a wonderful year. Anyway, now <laughs> Graham lives in Toronto with his wife, Margot Timmons, and she's of Cowboy Junkies fame, for you music fans. Uh, and there he pursues his interests, including history, literature, culture, coaching, genealogy, and scholarship on the poet, essayist, and philosopher Percy Bysshe Shelley. And you're going to hear a, a good amount about Shelley in the interview. But it's a great chat, don't you think, Darlene? I think so. And I think I can give a bit of background on why I was so excited about it. I mean, one of the cool things about doing a podcast is that you do every now and then get to interview people that you've always been really fascinated by their career, but might not have understood kind of the full backstory. So when we Mm -hmm. approached Graham, it was really because I've always admired just the way he practices law. You know, he uses his law degree as almost it's just, it's like adjacent to his job in that he's not practicing law in his day, um, but he's using his knowledge of the law. He's using his passion for advocacy. He now takes that and he applies it to fighting for artists' rights. And he does it in this very authentic way. I think he has made extraordinary progress for the Canadian uh, creator during his time he's very interested in many things outside the office and they do inform the way he practices law. So, you know, Shelley, the poet, 
um, Graham will, will find a way to bring Shelley into a lot of discussions. And really, you know, as you learn more about Shelley, which I knew zero about him before um, interacting with Graham, he does bring this sort of punk sensibility to poetry. And I think Graham brings a bit of punk sensibility to, uh, to his lawyerly ways, wouldn't you say, after talking oh, to him? Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah, you, that's uh, totally one, one takeaway here. It, he provides a really, you know, relatable beginning in the profession, not necessarily knowing why he's going to law school, having some issues with grades, at first getting a job that didn't really align with what he wanted to do, and then finding a way to practice authentically. And and I agree that, you know, he uses Shelley as this sort of like North Star, the poetry, and I think definitely inspires him to remain true to his values. And, and one thing that I took away um, well, there's a bunch of things I took away, but one specific thing I took away uh, is, as he says, you know, we ha- all have to keep reading. <laughs> and mm-hmm. in this day and age, it's just like video is everywhere and the Internet is whatever it is. Um, and it's falling away. And it's really important. Uh, and it's uh, honestly something that inspired me. I was like, I need to just sit with books more often because you can see through this interview how that has got to him to where he is today by continuing to read and be inspired by literature. So uh, it's a great interview uh, and I'm excited for, for you all to hear it. Me too. It's, uh, I'm excited. <laughs> okay, cool. With that, we're going to kick it over to the interview with our inspiring guest, Graham Henderson. <laughs> Graham Henderson, welcome. Hi. Welcome to the Lawyer Life Podcast. Thank you. <laughs> this is the way that you've always wanted to spend your Friday morning, yes? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Better than some of the alternatives. Well, we try. We try to make it fun. Um, you write a blog, and uh, we'll link to that in our show notes. But in your blog, you mentioned that when you went to law school, you were already sort of revolutionary in your thinking. Did you did you go to law school to make change or make a difference? No, I, I'm not sure why I went to law school. Um, <laughs> I I uh, I think I'd been drifting a little bit at the time. My then wife was very insistent on on pursuing some sort of professional credentials. Why don't you, why don't you, you know, write the LSATs and, and I had friends who'd done that, but also in the back of my mind, um, my father was a journalist and, uh, he a very successful journalist at, at points in his life. He was the national newscaster on the CBC when, when they inaugurated the national newscaster, sort, sort of like Canada's, uh, hmm. um, Edward Murrow. Uh, but, you know, it was an itinerant life in, and he, he, you know, there were, there were long periods of time where he was unemployed, uh, where he was struggling, where the family was struggling. And it kind of made sense to me that, well, you know, I can't be like that. I can't, uh, I, I need to have some sort of a, a, a degree or something where I punched a ticket and says who I am so that, uh, you know, I can provide because that was a huge, challenge for my father. And I think it caused an enormous amount of stress on him and, and, and the family. So all of this kind of conspired to have me to, for me to write these LSATs and uh, then apply to law schools. And I, I got in, uh, but it was as a, as, a, as a sort of a mature student at that point. I think I was 29 or something. And without question, I think in my first year, I really had no idea what I what I was doing. 
at all there. It was a real question mark to me. And and also all through my career, I'd been a very successful student. And when I got my first year law marks, I thought my world had imploded. Thought it was the end of the world. Mm -hmm. It's funny you bring that up because I think one of the major obstacles for people um, not pursuing their dreams, for lack of a better word, in law is that we, you know, I think what you've just described is probably a fairly common experience in the world of first year law of, you know, students who weren't um, people who had parents who were lawyers going to law school to get professional security. I mean, Mm -hmm. certainly in my family, it was marketed that if you had a profession, you were safer than if you had a job. And that that's a very common, you know, perception. And that was certainly the, the uh, propaganda that was floating around my house at the time. <laughs> but, you know, it's, I, I didn't, I, I didn't sort of think, but uh, I'm going to go into law and then I'm going to use my legal degree to, you know, effect change in the world. Um, and that first year, the other thing too is that law school, to me, I mean, it, it tests a very different set of um, skills. And so uh, I'm not kidding. When I opened up my grades, I went, I, I walked up the street, got them. I remember it's a sunny day, sat down on the steps of, of the uh, Royal Ontario Museum, opened them, and I saw for the first time in my life, Ds. I saw for the first wow. time in my life, Cs. I couldn't believe my eyes, and it, it. But it was partly because it was testing some weird part of my brain that wasn't active. And then when I went into the second year, where I actually started to be able to write, and instead of just you know regurgitating stuff, where you're you know you're writing essays and things like that, and I made very calculated choice to focus on courses where essays were required, thinking was required, and all that kind of stuff, which I excelled at. And then the marks went to the other end of the spectrum. But it was a it was it was a pretty strange experience for me. So was it hundred percent back in yeah. your day? Yeah, I mean that's the we've talked about that, and I've actually blogged about that. Mm-hmm. Just the ego impact of that oh, is that Christ. you know you yeah. were smart, and then you don't know if you're the smart kid at the whole year, mm-hmm. and then you get your grades at the end of the year. You're like, what does this mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what does this civil procedure mark mean about me? I don't know. I can't yeah. tell. That class was so horrible yeah. that I can't tell if doing well in it is a is a failing or a success <laughs> badge. Yeah. yeah. Um, Anyway, I've, I think a lot of people can probably relate to that shock and then to finding their way in second year. I think, mm-hmm. Mike, would you did you go through that? Uh, happily, I, I did I did pretty well <laughs> well in first year. Uh, okay, okay. Anyway, we shouldn't have called uh, Mike out. But Graham, I'm curious um, <laughs> because I, I you know I, I feel like my story aligns uh, it you know pretty well with with yours. I had a a job uh, in television and um, you know and then for various reasons felt pressure to you know. Uh, well, partially where the industry was going and the job uncertainty, uh, you know, going to law school later on in my mid twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, and I then got to law school with the hope of like, okay, I I'm passionate about, uh, you know, doing something positive and social change. So I'm going to have this kind of toolkit when I leave to go and do something positive. What was, as you went through law school, you know, what was, what was the goal as you left? Well, I guess, uh, I, I never that that part never happened for me there. I guess I got into the into the swing of it. Uh, I became a mooter, and I really devoted a ridiculous amount of my time to mooting. Uh, and um, 
So I, I, I have, I was the first person at the U of T to have done the grand moot in the first year, like the first year I got there. And I, I was guess I was trying to sort of play on my skills, which I thought were sort of more in that area. So it was really streaming me towards litigation. Um, and when I went to McCarthy's uh, in the mid eighties, uh, as a first as a summer student, when there were, by the way, four summer students, um, and, and uh, wow. <laughs> you, you, my interview, my interview actually was with a with with a, with a guy I knew from the Multiple Sclerosis Society. He'd been on my board, Michael Quigley, and I called him and I and I said, uh, "Do you guys hire summer students?" Yeah, yeah, we do. Why don't you come in for a chat or something? Very informal. And uh, I don't know how it happened, but we were we were. We were sitting in his office having a great old time, started talking about Star Trek. And he picked up the phone and he called the other person who was on the student committee, Sue Bissett. And he said, Sue, you got to get down here. We're talking about Captain Kirk. Oh, my yeah, God. I know. This is so great for people to hear, Graham, because I think there's such a... I mean, you're at the stage in your career where you can comfortably talk about sometimes how random it can be to get into certain yeah. places. Yeah. Um, you know, that that is the big firm interview. I mean, that's certainly well, it's conversational. I don't know if it's random anymore, right? That's the problem. No, it might not be now. Yeah. And 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 I think you see, as we like so I end up staying there and I end up on the student committee and a very part big part of the student committee. And by the end of it, you know, my feeling was, I think it was a fairly common feeling among many of the, um, when I, when I say older people then in their thirties and forties, late thirties and forties was Jesus. If these are the rules, I would never have been hired. The new rules, in other words, mm -hmm. right? The type of people you were supposed to look for, they have to all be Dean's list or rah, rah, rah. and we had to fight, fight to, uh, to have wild cards. And when you're fighting, and like I, I used to think I was a wild card, right? Like I was, hmm. had an English PhD. I was older. Um, my marks weren't all that great. Yes, I was a good mooter, but you know, all those sorts of things. So I think, I don't know what it is like now, but that's certainly what it was like in the early nineties when I did leave the big law firms. So so based on what you've described about the the sort of financial pressures going in, I mean, it makes sense. There are many law students today, for sure. And even when we all went through, there's always pressure to go to the big firm for the initial training and mm -hmm. then the mm -hmm. financial mm -hmm. security mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. um, how did you, I mean, how did you kind of leave behind the feeling that it always had to be about financial security and go and start your own mm -hmm. firm and go to Universal and... Yeah. You know, how did, did you always feel that or did you kind of just put um, finding something you love to do over it at some point? No, I, I definitely felt that um, I was going to get, you know, incredibly good training at a firm like that. And uh, by the way, I have no ill uh, feelings or nothing bad to say about my experience there. It was incredible. I ended up, you know, I made it into the partnership at the end of the day. Uh, but, um, you know, at some point, what I was doing and what I wanted to do was really diverging from what everybody else around me was doing. Um, and that is, it, it was at, it was at the point in time 
when law firms were becoming more corporate and they were starting to track hours. Now, this will be a crazy foreign concept to probably anybody listening to this, but McCarthy's didn't track our hours in, in when I was an associate there. I knew what they were. My, my immediate superior probably knew, but there was no centralized database where you could look and see, geez, Graydon's only billing 1,200 or 13 or whatever, whatever it was. Um, and then suddenly, once they were able to track it, uh, and then, then suddenly it became, well, you know, if we're going to hit our targets, everybody needs to produce 1,900 hours or 2,000 hours. And at that point in time, we were looking back and seeing, um, like for me, 12 or 1,300 hours was a good number. Um, and it actually produced a significant amount of money. Um, and in fact, you know, when you spoke to older lawyers from the 50s, 60s, 70s, they thought 1,200 was well very, very hard to do. And, hmm. you know, I, I forget what it works out to in a day, but, you know, it's four or five hours of billable work. That's a lot, right? You have to go to the washroom, you have to eat lunch, you have to have a bit of a life, right? You're supposed to talk to your friends and and uh, and have professional development. But when you start to ask people to bill 2,000 hours, you're starting to get up above eight hours a day of billable work, which is ridiculous. And mm -hmm. it, it what it starts to do is foreclose the possibility for private life. And I knew lawyers who came in at eight in the morning and went home at around eight o'clock at night kiss the kids and put them in bed and came back. Ooh. So, yeah. so for me, it became very clear that I was, I was increasingly a fish out of water, not for a law firm, a big law firm of the eighties, but the law firms of the nineties, mm, I wasn't starting to be able to fit in. And uh, the litigation work that I was doing, Oh my God, it's making me sick to my stomach. The letters <laughs> that you would get from litigators, like, I, and I had friends who were in litigation and I had done a specialty rotation in litigation. I was the top pick by the litigation team, you know, coming out of my articling year. That was my future. Everybody knew it. Graham was going to be a litigator, best litigator. And meanwhile, I realized if I did that, it was going to kill me. I'd have ulcers. It would turn me inside out. And I'd be good at it, but I'd be part of that red meat, weird world that is litigation. And I just couldn't do it. So at the last second, I switched to corporate law. And I remember trying to be different and trying to set myself apart and not feeling myself uh, as part of the system and that I was kind of growing up, calming down, working for the clamp down. All this didn't feel good. So by complete fluke, I ended up sitting at one of those big firm dinners with a lawyer who worked in the communications entertainment law department. And he said, uh, you know, we don't have a junior. You know, why, would you like to come and do, you know, communications or entertainment law? Now, when I heard the word entertainment law, like it was like, <laughs> no, like not that. That's ridiculous ridiculous. Uh, what a joke. And so I sort of said no. And 
Uh, I didn't, and then, but then I had another dinner and I ended up sitting beside him randomly uh, or near him. And he said, have you thought about it? Would you like come and talk to us? So I ended up going and talking to the, not him, but Stephen Stone, uh, who's still a dear friend of mine. And, you know, he's talking about what he did. And Stephen was an, uh, a music and film lawyer. He, he sort of described us and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, how, how can I fit into this? How could I fit? And then I started to think about my family and I realized, well, you know, my dad might've been a journalist, but it really, he was an artist and his mother actually was a painter. And then on my, and when I say artist, I mean, he, he when he was young in the thirties and forties, he that's what he wanted. He wanted to be an actor. And he was also a trained pianist, like a, an accomplished, could have been probably concert pianist. And then on my mother's side, she was in the Royal Conservatory. She was trained to be a singer. Of course, the war interrupted all of these people's lives. Uh, and uh, But her father was uh, a Shakespearean actor. So I started to think, you know, I'm useless. I can't sing. I can't do anything. I have no musical skills. Um, I'm not a poet. I can't do any of this. But maybe this is how I can continue the family tradition. I can be an enabler for people like that. And so that's when I called Stephen back and said, yeah, I'll do it. And so it began, the storied career in entertainment <laughs> law. <laughs> I love yeah, that you thought that at the beginning that was a no-go, because most law students would say that that was very interesting right off the, right off the top. Well, let's, let's transition into that. I just I want to make sure that we, we get to the, the, current, uh, the current stage of, of where this is, because... Yeah. Um, what you're doing at the moment, I mean, you've you've gone through, you've got a long history of working with creators at this point. Um, you are yeah. effectively in your role at Music Canada, you are really educating and bringing issues of the music industry and creators to the attention of the government. That's a, a big, big thing that you're doing, as well as explaining to the general public what what the value of music is. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what your current um, focus is for helping save the creative middle class? Well, you know, we're the music music industry association. So I have three members, Sony, Warner, and Universal. It's my job to create a framework uh, which enables them, to put it bluntly, to make more money. Because in our capitalist system, more money means more opportunity. And in, and in their world, more opportunity means signing more artists, marketing more artists, promoting more artists, and creating careers. Plus, employing, hopefully, hundreds of young people who also want to help artists create careers. So that's my job, is to create that framework. And when you think about the framework, what, okay, so what, how on earth, what does an association do? Well, there's four levers of government that you can pull, you, or four things that government can do for you. They can change their laws, they can change their policies, they can fix their institutions, or they can give you money. So you look at these different levers, and we figure out, okay, how do we, how, how can they help us to make more money so that it betters the livelihoods of everybody looking at these four. And one of the most obvious ones that people look at is legislative change because copyright law underlies the foundation of everything that anybody does in the creative arts. 
So one of the things that you're innovating on, though, I find whenever I kind of watch you from watch you in action is that you identify things before there's real buy-in in the industry or elsewhere on what is the issue that's going to be a big problem in a few years. You know, like part of the, you kind of have to read the tea leaves a little bit. And I think you've been saying for quite a while that there is this problem with technology companies mm-hmm. um, and you're helping the government understand because I think that, um, you know, views on the internet evolve, right? So in the beginning, mm-hmm. anything on the internet that happened was good because it was freedom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. in the music industry, we had to fight that for very many years saying, well, mm-hmm. freedom you know, artists need to create and they need to be compensated. Mm-hmm. And now mm-hmm. you're kind of explaining another piece of that, the next level, mm-hmm. which is that there are these services um, that, you know, technology companies prominently in the news, Facebook is is there for data. Mm-hmm. Um, you're really grappling with YouTube for um, the use of music, um, YouTube and other mm-hmm. services that mm-hmm. are treated as non-neutral or sorry, as neutral parties Mm -hmm. that don't make choices Mm -hmm. about what's on their network Mm -hmm. and you're dealing Mm -hmm. with, no, no, those are choices. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you feel when you're going in there, do you feel like you're sort of David versus Goliath on this point? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've been uh, David for a very long period of time, but from the very get go, like I joined the, uh, the corporate side. I, I went to universal music in 1999 so it was right at the cusp, right, where Napster had just emerged and everything was going to get disrupted. And it didn't matter. From the very beginning, I was listening to what the technology companies were saying, and I was questioning it. And that's because I come from a skeptical tradition, right? And that, that's, you mentioned Shelley off the top. When people think about Shelley, they think Shelley was a romantic, they think of, think of him as a romantic poet or poet of love, when in fact he was a poet of revolution. And one of the principal tools that he used to undermine the power systems of his day and the hierarchy of his day was skepticism. And so, you know, I, I was, so I'm a very skeptical person when people, and I expect people to apply skepticism to what I say, right? I don't, I don't. I don't think you should take things on faith. But the problem we had with the claims being made by the Silicon Valley companies were that was pretty much what they required of, of, um, of policymakers. Faith. Have faith in me. Trust me. Believe in me. We, you know, just take this as an article of faith that we're going to look after artists, that we're going to disrupt, we're going to move fast and break things, but trust us. Right. And they did. And so an entire so, you know, they're pulling this. They they're looking at government, I guess, the same way I do. There's legislation. There's this. There's this. So let's change all of these institutions to benefit us so that we can make more money. Right. And and at first, everybody just naturally assumed that, well, Google says it's going to do no evil. I guess it's going to do no evil. But for me, I was looking at it from the very beginning. From a skeptic through a skeptical lens and questioning all of these ridiculous claims. Plus, I'm starting to see the immediate impact on the lives of creators of these claims. Suddenly the money's drying up. Right. And I, I made the point that 
earlier that co copyright's the foundation of the, it's the way people who create things for intellectual property, it's the way they make money. You know, if you create, write a book or it's the way you make money because you have a right to say no when somebody else wants to use it. Do you think that this, um, this interest you have in, I mean, when I think about what you're talking about with Shelley and saying how mm -hmm. this is an interest outside work, um, mm -hmm. I don't think it's, I mean, it's very deeply tied. And if you didn't have those interests mm -hmm. outside work, and if you weren't being skeptical and developing those critical muscles, yeah. you couldn't do what you do. And you also couldn't no. explain it well to people who yeah. don't just want to hear about the nuances of copyright. They want to hear about revolution and skepticism yeah, yeah. and, you know, not taking um, things on face value that shouldn't, that should be questioned. That's what lawyers are supposed to do, right? That is what we were trained to do. Mm -hmm. And I feel like sometimes in the practice of law, what we end up doing is just head down, um, you know, cranking out arguments uh, to reference your earlier example with litigation, um, getting yeah. into ego battles, stuff like that. Yeah. Whereas, mm -hmm. you know, you've carved out a, an art, a battle really to mm -hmm. have, um, mm -hmm. and it can have really, really, really huge impacts. I mean, it can, I think when I read your report, it talks about like a billion dollars that used to be paid to artists has come out of the uh -huh. industry since. Yeah. Um, and that's, was that annually seems to me like it's a lot of, it's a yeah. huge figure. So yeah. it, it really explains why people who used to make a pretty decent living at music don't anymore. And that's, that's something to be, to be fought for. When you listen to the clamp down now mm -hmm. by the clash, as I'm sure you yeah. do, um, do you feel like you've, you've grown up and calmed down or do you feel like you're, you're doing what they would want you to be doing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, yeah. Well, I, uh, I don't think I'm necessarily, uh, but you know, I think you always, ha again, you have to apply that skepticism to yourself, right. To be self-critical um, and, uh, and to sort of reflect is, is what I'm, is what I, am I working for the man here or am I really trying to do something different? Uh, and I, there are a lot of people who would probably point at me and say, of course you're working for the man. You work for Sony, Warner, and Universal. But you know what? There are There is the man, and then there's the man. Uh, and, and I think that um, on the, in the grand scale of things, you know, one of the ironies about the uh, first wave of attacks from Silicon Valley, like who did they target? Right. Who is the who are the first people whose rights were going to be under uh, uh, eroded and attacked? It was creators. Right. So they were the first casualties uh, of the of the disruption. Um, and you, you sort of ask yourself, like, well, well, you know, why? Why did that happen? Um, and why was that important? And, and I think it's because historically. Um, creators are the people who have held up the, if not the stop sign, the pause sign. The question that you should be asking yourself is not uh, could I, but rather should I? And, and you, what you were saying about the, the legal profession, 95% of lawyers are thinking, could I? How could we do this? How do we do this? How do we bend the rules? And that's that. You know, that's the ideology of, of um, Silicon Valley. Can we do this? Oh, then let's do it. Mm -hmm. There's no should. 
There's no pause. Um, there's no skepticism, right? That, that, and, and, and then we, we get sold a bill of goods. The passion that you have for your work is so clear. And to take something that someone might see as this discrete issue, you know, protecting copyright and to, you know, expand it to this worldview that, that you clearly have, I think could only motivate you in your work. And it's something that we talk about often, um, you know, in these episodes is how one finds purpose and injects it in their work. And so Mm -hmm. how, you know, you're, you're well on in doing this. I think what would your advice be to somebody coming up, um, in, Mm -hmm. in, you know, as a young lawyer to, to, Mm -hmm. to do this? Uh, that it's not just STEM science, technology, English, and math, that it's, that it's arts and the humanities, right? That, that, that to have a grounding in, in that area and to be well-read is critically important, right? Because that, that's what enhances, you know, your, your critical faculties. Um, and again, if you think of, of when you, when I think of Shelley, right, I think of somebody who actually had a system devised to, um, to, to overturn the hierarchy and the patriarchy. And it sort of actually began by applying a sort of a skepticism. And so he, he looks at the two, the twin power systems of his day, religion and the state and the state was a, was a monarchical system. And, And so he would say what they're, what they really want of the people is to relax their critical faculties, right? And to abdicate, and this is the critical point, abdicate responsibility for our world. Well, okay, so you say, oh, very 18th, 19th century ideas. Really? Like, they still have a monarchy in England. They st- we have a pope. And I look around the world and I think, if anything, authoritarianism and religion aren't receding. We're not more secular. I think Shelley would just, I think if he, if he landed today, it would explode his head. That would explode his head. You'd show him computers and planes flying through the air and he'd go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what's with the Pope? How, why is he still here? And why is there still a king? And why isn't this a secular society? He wouldn't care about all of these technological advances. Well, there's also another religion, right? Like, I think, wouldn't he be upset yes. about just the the dominance of money and capitalism? Yes. And I think for lawyers, like listening to this podcast, one of the things that Mike and I talk about sometimes, or fairly often, Mike, actually, yeah. <laughs> um, we talk about really sitting down and saying, you know, are the reasons that I'm doing what I'm doing part of my own values? Mm-hmm. Or am I delivering work into the system that says, you know, the way, the way to practice law, which is its own kind of dogma, is to be at a big firm, deliver yeah. the hours, that's a successful lawyer, mm-hmm. all you other guys are doing something else. And I think that that is an orthodoxy. And I think mm-hmm. that one of the things that we're trying to really address yeah. in, in this podcast is just let's not have that orthodoxy. Let's say there are many ways to be a lawyer, there mm-hmm. are many ways to contribute. And there are many ways to you know, apply, don't park the knowledge mm-hmm. of skeptic, you know, don't park those skills. Actually, Mike, you're better at summaries. Why don't you sum up? Because I know we want to move to our our next segment. So do you want to sum up or do you want to let me do it? Well, I think, 
it's it's funny. It's so often in, at the end of every conversation we have here, I think it's about individual solutions and what works best for people is where we land often. And so um, part of that is finding the thing that drives you, right? That, And I don't know how you could find that without looking at things critically and finding some root of cause or... Um, you know, a problem that needs to be solved. That's part of purpose, right? And and that's what I think Graham so well speaks about today is that without using your critical faculties and without questioning systems, mm-hmm. you're not going to find that individual solution or purpose, mm-hmm. right? And so for folks that feel like, you know, as Darlene has said in, in other episodes, they're living somebody else's life in a way at work, uh, or certainly they're there and they don't know why and they're not enjoying it. It you only start to be able to build for yourself the solution if you look at where you are critically and try to figure out what's wrong, right? Um, and so I think Graham is so, so along the path of, you know, it seems you are, you know, of uh, finding a thing that really drives you uh, that's so inspiring. And, and But for, I think, you know, your, as you said, you know, you read, you're inspired by our um, you know, without those sort of pieces, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps you wouldn't have been able to find uh, that path so easily. No, I wouldn't have. So when I left McCarthy's, just to go to full circle, I was uh, a partner, a very career, clear career path, just like it had before at the charities when I decided to go another, here's another branch in the road, stay and do, you know, the, the stay in, in the belly of the beast, even though I'm working, by the way, for recording artists and so on and so forth. And I'm like, not like, or you step outside the system and it is a financial decision, right? A lot of people call it the golden handcuffs, but I stepped out and I worked on my own for three years and I shared space in, in, uh, in the offices of a, of a, of a labor uh, law firm, a very left labor law firm that did work for unions and I, I felt labor side felt so much more comfortable and I felt like I could be myself in that world and and then I did that for years just start a little independent boutique but that that was tricky those are difficult decisions to make but you kind of have to make them if you want to be true to yourself Great point to end on. And the part of why we invited you to be on this is I do think you practice law and or you you run your career in a way that is very true to yourself. I think that, um, you know, I think the clash would be proud if I could speak for the mm-hmm. clash. Mike, do you even know who the clash are? Yes, I, yeah. I'm not a toddler. Okay. <laughs> Just checking. Okay. We'll, uh, we'll end there, I guess, and move to goods and grapes. Sounds good. We'll be right back after this. The Lawyer Life Podcast is brought to you by Interalia Law. Interalia lawyers have big firm training, in-house experience, and a wide range of expertise in technology, media, and entertainment. Our advice is business-focused, speedy, and practical. To learn more, visit interalialaw.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-A-L-I-A-Law.com. And we are back with our goods and gripes. Goods are things we want to promote and support. Gripes are things that annoy us. 
I have a good, and it's uh, speaking of, uh, you know, finding a path in law, uh, just read an article from Bloomberg Law. Uh, and the headline is Ginsburg found another way after law firm rejections. And basically, uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the US, obviously, um, she just uh, has mentioned recently that uh, if she landed a law firm job right after law school, like was the goal even then, um, she might not be where she is today. Uh, and effectively, uh, what what the, her rejection led to, despite the fact that she was top of her class and so on, she didn't get a, a law firm job straight out of school, um, and she went uh, into a clerkship and you know so on and so forth. And, uh, and obviously, she's one of the most renowned uh, judges and lawyers uh, in modern history. So. Uh, a great reminder that even if things don't work out at the outset, you can still wind up doing great stuff. She had some compelling uphill circumstances to uh, to combat. Mm -hmm. But yes, yeah, so also, Graham, you usually have a few grapes, yeah. but it's all good. You don't have well, any well, grapes. I, I, I mean, I think my my good would, would I would have to, I mean, right right now, what's uh, for me is, is um, giving me a lot of joy. Uh, is the fact that in this whole debate that we've had about Silicon Valley and about these monolithic entities, that the uh, ground is shifting. Uh, I was asked a question um, in the aftermath of my speech uh, by one journalist um, who was saying, well, you know, these tech giants, how can a bunch of artists, how can they beat them? And my answer was, well, well, we just did, right? I mean, the Heritage Report very clearly responded to, I don't know how many, 170 witnesses, and a lot of them were professors who shill for Google and Google themselves, and all of the tech enthusiasts were in there saying, nothing's wrong, everything's fine, status quo, let's just keep giving money to Silicon Valley. And then the artists came in, with their compelling story and a choice was made and they didn't choose tech for the first time they didn't choose tech they choose the create they chose the creator so the good for me is is that and i think that we've reached this point of inflection where a single artist like you know andrew morrison of the jerry cans with a single quote which got like emblazoned in the practically on the cover of the heritage report where he says you know i i'm familiar with you know the stories of my uh you know the the artists that went before their royalty checks and what it could buy and but for me my royalty check can't buy a cup of coffee and a single artist like that can unleash a quote like that which so impresses and by the way there were lots of others but so impresses the committee that they're 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 something you know what we're we're with you and so David, the artist in this case, doesn't kill Goliath, but definitely unbalances. So we've reached this point now where artists have unbalanced Goliath. And by the way, Goliath has a lot of other things to deal with, and that isn't hurting: data breaches, privacy invasion, interference in elections, complete, total, utter lack of platform accountability. Uh, not our fault, nothing to do with us, look over here, don't look at the man behind the curtain, all that kind of, it's just wearing thin. So that's my good. Times have changed. Very good. And you're very involved in those times of changing. 
Well, that's great. Well, Graham, thanks so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. It was a, a real, uh, normally when I see you were talking about business or industry things, it was great to hear a little bit of the history um, and to hopefully share your path and some of the things that motivate you and inspire us to, uh, to help other lawyers. That's the point here on the Lawyer Life podcast. Let fury have the hour. Anger can be power. <laughs> yes. I hope we can link to the uh, the clamp down by the clash in our show notes. <laughs> if we can't get the uh, clearance to play it, we will uh, we'll link to it so people can hear it if they aren't. Yeah, and, and also the and what the they should also listen to Tom Robinson band Power of the Darkness. Another good. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Okay. Thanks so much. Have a great <laughs> Friday. All right. Thank you. Thanks. That's it for this week's episode of LLP. Thanks to Inter Alia Law for presenting the podcast and to Nick Fowler for composing and performing our music. See our show notes for his website. Don't forget, we love feedback. Please comment in the review section or subscribe or like. We'd appreciate it greatly. That's it. Talk soon.